Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we're talking with people who are living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, we're talking with Harriet Hancock. For almost three decades, this Columbia, South Carolina attorney and activist has been a force for social and cultural change in the, her state. Ms. Hancock is an attorney who has practiced in the Columbia, South Carolina area. She's a proud mother of three, two daughters and a son. When her son came out to her as being gay in 1980, a transformation really happened because she went from being just his mom to being an an advocate that just sort of like came out of her. And in her three decades, decades in South Carolina, she's been a force for social and cultural change. She's a tireless advocate for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people living in South Carolina and their families. And so much. She started the first chapter of PFLAG, Parents and Families and Friends of Lesbian and Gays in South Carolina. She's a co-founder of a Palmetto AIDS Life Support Services of South Carolina, which is the first grassroots organization in South Carolina to provide services for those of HIV, AIDS, and their families. She was invited to the White House under President Obama, and she got a chance to meet him when he had one of his receptions for the LGBT community in June of 2011. She was also very instrumental in founding and getting going the LGBT Center right there in Columbia, South Carolina. It's part of an anniversary celebration for South Carolina gay and lesbian pride movement at their banquet in April of 2005. The center was named in her honor. You know, it shows, like I said, she not only came out as an activist when her son came out to her, but she became also a mother to a movement there in South Carolina, making things happening, seeing what's happening, so much so that the South Carolina gay and lesbian pride movement referred to her as the mother of pride. Harriet, how are you today? And welcome I'm, to the show. I'm fine. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm telling you, I mean, I think it, it's just amazing, uh, the life that you've, you've led. Um, we talked briefly on the phone. I mean, I had not met you, but I had a friend who was from South Carolina and talked about having that center there and what it meant. And that, and that here was this woman who they called the mother of pride. And um, in part, you're on the show because she said, 
I want to know her story. I want to know about about this woman who did this. And, you know, um, you are, many times people go like, well, I'm not special. I can't do this. I think that you're very special. But you're also just a girl from South Carolina. I mean, you were telling me how you went through the, the regular things. You graduated 18. You got married. You had a baby. You, you traveled around with your husband. That's Did correct, you, yeah. Uh, yeah. You, so was that like what you saw as the path for you, your future? Well, actually, I, would, I grew up in an area where I think that most women, you know, I was born in 36, so I was graduating from high school in 54, and I think at that time most people thought that women should put most of their energies toward finding a good husband who could provide a good support and a good life for them. So, um, you know, I actually wanted to be a nurse, but when my husband came along and he'd just gotten out of the Navy and I was 18, very much in love, and as I always uh-huh. tell people, you know, that was before the days of a sexual revolution. And, you know, we you, it, it, raging hormones. I think some of us made marriages that weren't exactly um, as it should have been simply because of the, you know, the prohibitions and the, and the actually, like I say, just falling in love and, and you know, getting married and, and that kind of thing because it was this thing that you kind of uh, did back then because, like I say, you would, your main goal at that time was just to find somebody who could support you. So I married at 18 and my husband finished college. He went to school on the GI Bill and when he graduated, it was electrical engineer at the University of South Carolina. Then we started moving around up and down the eastern seaboard. Um, we first went to New Jersey, and then he went with RCA, then he went to uh, Florida uh, with RCA, and he was working on the missile tracking program, quite an exciting time in our lives, and um, mm-hmm. and I had three children. So, yes, I didn't have any, uh, you know, education except for high school, so I was a stay-at-home mom raising kids and doing the PTA thing, so I never envisioned that I would be uh, in the limelight in any way, with any cause necessarily. Um, so that's kind of the way it happened. But you never know uh, what is going to come along in life that will certainly jar you into doing things that you never thought you could do. That's for sure. Wow. When you when you took off and you left uh, South Carolina and you're going traveling from here and there, did you ever think that you'd end up back in South Carolina? Uh, Not really. Uh, I think my husband looked at, you know, maybe retiring, uh, you know, back in the South, certainly. We didn't know whether we'd come back to South Carolina, depending on who was still here. Uh, Of course, parents would be dead by that time. And so, but we wanted to come back South. That was sort of what we planned. But we didn't, you know, didn't have any definite plans about retirement because we were still young. And he died uh, in uh, 79. So that was, um, um, you know, we hadn't. He was very young, and I was young. I was, mm-hmm. you know, 42. So so um, I had to stop and rethink everything. Here I was with no education, and I had, in high school, I had taken cosmetology so I could work as a cosmetologist. But when we left Columbia, I did that to support him through college. When we left Columbia, I didn't work anymore. I didn't keep my license up. So when he passed away, it was like, here I was. What am I going to do? Uh, except, you know, go back home where I've got family to be supportive because we were living in that time. We were living in the D.C. area. He was uh-huh. working for the federal government. So I had to come back home where I had family support. I had my daughter, Jennifer, was um, 
12 at the time, and my son Greg was a senior in high school. So we came back, um, you know, so that they could help me, you know, with, you know, when you lose your husband and it's a shock like that when they're so young, you're very much a loose end, so I needed their help. So I came back to South Carolina, and that's when I decided that, you know, I had to make a living. I had to support myself. I had to support my kids, and I was fortunate enough to start college, something I had never done before, and then go on to law school because I had help from my family and and uh, some insurance money. So that, that provided me with a, a way to, you know, find a career and, and to start, you know. Um, start you know, you told, you told me that you and your son went to college together. We I mean, did. How, that, that's kind of cool. And, and, yeah, we started in... Um, 80, and we both went to the University of South Carolina together, and of course, we didn't realize that we were taking a class together, um, and um, it was the first year we were in school together, and we were taking a um, a survey class. It was, I think, biology, or, yeah, it was biology, and I had already gone into the classroom. It was a big classroom, big survey class, and I'd gotten a seat, and I saw him walk in, and I stood up and waved my hands like, hey, I'm up here. I've got a seat for you, and of course, he was crestfallen. The last thing that he wanted in the world was his mother waving at him to come sit by her in a college class. <laughs> you know, but he got over it. it. You know, I'm sure it was embarrassing to him, and I, but it, we we laugh about that today. So yes, we um, we went through together, and I think we had one other class together while we were there. But we went to football games together, believe it or not, and sat in the student section because we were both students. And um, his friends accepted me. I, I had a good time. <laughs> Well, you know, that that's something that, you know, like you said, how you had gone through all of these things. At one point, you wanted to be a nurse. Then you had got that, and it was like that moment to regroup. Did you, like, you knew that? How did your kids, how did he feel? Like, you know, you're going to college. You're going to go to the same college as me. How were how were they, like, they real supportive? Yes, or? very supportive. My children were so crushed, you know, by their father's death and seeing me struggling, you know, and feeling they just wanted me to be happy i wanted them to be happy and we all wanted each other to to find a place where we could we could heal together and be happy together and they were wonderfully supportive and it really you know actually i think he got a kick out of me going to school at the same time he did and um and like i say we we his friends accepted me you know i wasn't with i didn't hang out with them but you know like we go uh-huh. football games together uh-huh. and things like that now, but yeah now, I see that you were a Phi Beta Kappa graduate. Was there any kind of friendly competition between the two of you? You know, no, not really. <laughs> and I never um, thought about being, you know, being in Phi Beta Kappa. That was not something I was striving to do. I wanted to make the absolute best grades I could because I just felt like, you know, I was going back. I was going to school, you know, for the first time. I never really had an opportunity to go to college before because I married so young. And uh, so I was just really wanting to um, do the best I could. And, and, you know, when I, I think I was so shocked when once I received a letter in the mail that saying I had been awarded a, a scholarship, and it was called a President's Award, uh, and it was a money scholarship for making the, um, the President's List. That means making all A's, and I did that for two semesters, so I got some financial help there, which was wonderful. But I, it, was, it came as a shock to me because that wasn't what I was looking for. Uh, was mm-hmm. not to be in, I wasn't looking for honors. I was looking just to do the best I can so that when I got out, I could get a good job. So, uh, and, I mean, and I mean, my son was fine. He didn't, you know, uh-huh. he was, he wasn't aiming to make, to set the world on fire with grades either because he was just, you know, he just wanted to get, get his degree and get a job. So, 
but you really I didn't have, have much competition. Uh-huh. Uh, but I mean, I mean, I have to imagine, you know, here you came back home and you talked about what you were trying to do for your kids and how supportive was. How proud they must have been to see you walk across the stage. But at the same point, how proud were you to have your son walking across the stage? That well, was I a, can a, tell an amazing you moment. Right. Actually, we. He, he needed another semester beyond me, so I was a June graduate. I'm mean, a May graduate, and he was a December graduate that year, but we certainly supported each other because he had to, some extra classes he needed to take, so he went an extra semester. And during this time, my daughter, who uh, was married at the time, um, actually she was engaged at the time my husband passed away, and she was married the following January, so she and her husband um, lived in... Uh, Cleveland, and she had um, she had started dental school, and she was going through dental school while we were going through undergraduate school. And she graduated from dental school the same year that I started to law school. So, mm. yeah, she was very supportive, and she was happy to see me going back to school. She thought it was wonderful because she always said, "Mom, you really missed the boat. You really needed to go to college because you're really college material." and you know, you love to read, and she always thought I was, you know, um, smart, and I don't know. She just was happy for me. My kids were very happy for me. Oh, that, that's great. What made you decide to go on to law school? Well, I, it's something that I always kind of thought about, but then at the time, of course, when I was in high school, it was almost like, you're a woman, then you will be a teacher or you will be a nurse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kind of feeling, you know, I don't think, I mm-hmm. didn't know any women that went to law school then. I kind of thought it was prohibitive or at least almost impossible, you know, for me. So I, but it became a reality. It, by the time I went back, you know, women were going to law school and they were accepting, you know, um, older students to go to law school also. So um, I didn't realize, I didn't have any idea whether I was going to be accepted, but I did well. And I was accepted, but I was very surprised. I never thought I'd be able to go to law school. So it was great, and I totally am so glad that I did because I I was able to reach out to the LGBT community and fight for their rights in my law practice and help them particularly to um, draw up documents to protect themselves since there was no same-sex marriage at the time. And we did a lot of that because, you know, if you were you were, lived with somebody and you may live with for 30 years, but unless you're married to them, you are what we call legal uh-huh. strangers. You're not, you don't, you know, if uh-huh. one dies and there's no will, the person doesn't inherit. So we tried to, um, several other lawyers, you know, and I worked to try to inform the LGBT community to please get your papers in order because you never know when something's going to happen. You never know when you like, might have to have your partner make decisions for you in a health care capacity. So mm-hmm. it was important for me to help the LGBT community protect themselves as much as possible. So I did a lot of that, and that was uh, good. Right now, you know, um, I had another guest, actually, who, who went back to school much like you did, um, followed his dream, became a journalist, ended up, you know, becoming, in fact, he's recently written a book. And he was saying that, you know, that being the older student amongst them, how not only did it keep you young, but it, you were able to provide a perspective. As you, knowing what women weren't able to do, you know, how back in the day, the idea of never being a lawyer didn't. When you got that law degree and you went out to practice, 
do you feel it helped you, you know, by having lived some life? Oh, and absolutely. It, it certainly did. And I'll tell you, I... When I started back, to, when I started to the University of South Carolina, they asked me if I would like to go into a mature students program, and I said, no, I just want to be like everybody else. I just want the total experience of what it's like to go to college, and whether I'm older or not, it doesn't make any difference. Well, what I found, I thought, well, I'll be such a loner, you know, people won't, we won't make friends with a lot of young people, but I found it to be just the opposite. I took good notes, and I was there every day. And for the most part, if anybody missed a day or, and didn't get notes, they called on me to ask me if they could use my notes or copy my notes or what happened in class that day because they knew I was so serious about what I was doing. So I made friends, and I had good friends, young people and, you know, older people. But, you know, I I fit in better than I thought I would. It was just that kind of thing. I just And I really, really enjoyed um, enjoyed it. I totally did. Now, it seems like you and, I mean, obviously, no, you and your son, you're in college because you had a really good relationship, and then he comes out to you. And, you know, and even in the most supportive, you know, families, there's that moment as a parent, and I've talked to, to a lot of parents, and I know even from where you have that moment of, like, I want the best for you, I'm afraid for you because I see what it's going about. Did you have an inkling that he was gay? You know, I think maybe one time I might have thought he was, but then my son dated women, and he brought home some of the most attractive young ladies you just ever saw. And um, and I know good and well at this point, you know, now, in retrospect, I realize that he was, I think he was trying not to be gay, but then I think he realized mm-hmm. he was gay, but he just didn't, wasn't ready to come out, and he just did it as a smokescreen kind of thing, you know. He brought young women home, and but I did find out because he came out to my sister um, mm. in, in 1980, and, and she um, he had had a girlfriend, and and my sister knew her, and she was not happy. She just I think was really very fond of Greg, but he wasn't sort of returning that same kind of feeling to her. It was, she, I think she told my sister he was more like a brother, and, mm-hmm. and you know, and but she loved him so much, and so she was not happy. And so my sister just went to him and said, you know, I talked to, um, um, I don't call the young woman's name, but anyway, he said, I talked to her and she said, you know, that you don't return her feelings and she's very much in love with you. And, and she said, are you, what's the matter? Are you gay or something? She just said that. And he said, what would you do if I told you I am? And she said, absolutely nothing. That wouldn't make any difference to me. Mm-hmm. But, um, but you know, we need to talk about this because you don't need to be, you know, dating women and leaving them on, you know. Mm-hmm. You need to just be who you are. So, and then they they will sort of, I think for about six months, um, you know, didn't tell me. But finally she said to him, you're going to have to tell your mother. Mm-hmm. It's not fair to not tell her. And he says, but, you know, she's had such a hard time um, mm. with you know, the death and trying to get herself together and get us back in school and take care of us and do all the things that she needs to do. I don't want to add anything. I didn't want to add any more burdens to her, you know. Mm. And so she said, but, you know, you just need to do this and she'll be fine. And so mm. they told me and my, my sister came with him when they told me. And when he was sitting across the table from me and he just, 
I knew he said he had something to tell me and asked me to sit down. And I just said, no, I don't want to sit down because there's something going on here and I need to know what it is. And I just need you to tell me now. And he looked at my sister and he said, I can't tell her. And uh, I could see the tears just brimming over in his eyes. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I don't know what's going on here. But anyway, she said to him, yes, you can. She's going to be fine. And I just said, Greg, please tell me. Please tell me what it is. And he said, well, Mom, I'm gay. And, you know, and I just said, oh, my goodness, is that the only thing I thought you were <laughs> or, or that you got mm-hmm. caught smoking pot? I thought something terrible mm-hmm. had happened. Mm-hmm. And he just stood up because I never did sit down. And we just hugged. And, and you know, and the whole thing was uh, I was scared for him. I, I hurt for him because he was in so much pain, number one. And I hurt for him because I didn't know what his life was going to be like. It was just all of a sudden, you, be, uh, you just have these lost expectations uh, for your child, and all of a sudden it becomes different. And then you think about what their life may be like, and, you, and I knew what gay people's lives were like. They, you know, I never thought they could be happy. They were outcast and second-class citizens, and I just thought, I don't want that for my son because it will hurt him. But I also knew that there wasn't any... Alternative, I, you know, I knew, however I knew this was people, gay people didn't choose to be gay, and they can't change it. So I, I never started from that premise at all. I just did you have a Did you have a moment when you said, why did I bring him back to South Carolina? I mean, having grown up there, and you know that there's a level of conservatism, you knew that it wasn't totally accepting, and here's your baby. Like you said, you want the best for your child. You want him to be able to thrive and be happy. And there were things, did you ever say like, but wait a minute, that might not be here. Did you wonder, is he going to have to leave here? No, I I really never thought about that because somehow I thought, I can protect him. I can can help him. I know that there's something that I can do. I don't want anybody to hurt any of my children. And I certainly don't want him to be the brunt of jokes or be the victim of a hate crime. I don't want any of that for him. And um, and after, you know, he came out to me and he introduced me to some of his friends and he provided some reading material for me, I kind of recovered because I was, in a, I was in a state of anxiety for a while. It had nothing to do with me wanting him to change or not loving him or not accepting him. It was total fear for him. Mm-hmm. And until he could convince me that he had lots of gay friends and that they... And he talked about the family. He said, people who are estranged from their families are, you know, we, we have what we call family. And, and it's gay people that come together and have Thanksgivings together and entertain, you know, because a lot of times they can't go home. And he said, of course, I'm not in that position, but we have each other. And so he introduced me to a lot of his friends. I liked them and, you know, I became friends with them. And I used to go around to the gay bars and put out information about PFLAG and when the meetings were and hand out leaflets, you know, for people to tell their parents about PFLAG. And I made a lot of friends in the LGBT community, and um, and I and I love drag. I was introduced to drag, and I uh-huh. thought, oh, uh-huh. this is great. I, I like a good drag show. I still to this day do. Uh-huh. Well, you know uh, what? I, it sounds like him coming out and hearing this stuff lit a fire in your belly because then you went out and started the first chapter of of P flag, and it's sort of like it was like okay, I came out to you, mom, but now mom is out there. You know, you're passing out literature, you're doing all that. How did he feel about your 
well, first of all, the activism. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I think sort of what, what was um, made me think about other people was some of his friends would just say, uh, you know, if you hear this, I wish you were my mom. My mom mm-hmm. won't talk to me, or they won't, you know, they don't know, I can't tell them, or they do know and they don't want to discuss it, or, you know, they tolerate me, but they don't understand me, you know, and all of those things. It just hurt me. For somebody to tell you, I wish you were my mom, it made me feel so bad for them because, you know, I can't be your mom, but I can be here to give you support and I can love you, but I can't be your mother. You know what I'm saying? I, I could, could, because, you know, that's different. So I just wanted their mothers and fathers to be more accepting, and I knew that there was a need for education and outreach in the community, especially in the South, and I just wanted other people, parents and family members and friends to be educated about um, homosexuality and to get rid of so many of those myths that existed out there and just plain ridiculous ideas about gay people and to, to know the truth, to absolutely know the truth. And that's why I started Pete Flag. And it's the first Pete Flag in South Carolina. And, How did you uh, find was, out about Pete Flag? Uh, I was listening to a radio show one day coming mm-hmm. back from um, school and um, I was driving on the highway and they had this, I think it was called the Bill Benton Show, and it was in the middle of the day, it was like at noon. And I held, and they were talking to, it was on, on a um, telephone hookup, they were interviewing a woman named Amy Ashworth who lived in New York City, who she and her husband had helped start a group um, along with, I guess, um, Gene Manford who started the first P-Flag group, uh, and it was called Parents of Gays. And I heard her talking about she had two gay sons, and um, she was re- being ridiculed because it was a call-in show, and the people in South Carolina that were calling in and just lambasting her for encouraging mm-hmm. her children to be th- to that lifestyle and not trying to change them. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this woman has just taken such a beating. And, of course, that was before the days of cell phones, so I couldn't wait to get home and um, go into my house and pick up the phone and dial the number to the radio show and basically say, I am a person who has a different comment to make. I support this lady. Please put me on, you know, as soon as you can. And they did. And I just basically said, I understand you, and I appreciate what you're doing, and I think it's great, and it's brave, and I support you. And I really want to start a group like you started, but I want to start one right here where I live in Columbia, South Carolina. So she, after, you know, we got off the phone, we contacted each other just in a personal conversation, and she helped me um, tell me where I could send off for some literature about how to start a group. And so that's kind of how it got started. But then I had to talk to my son. I had to say, you know, um, I'm sure he didn't want to be the poster boy of for gays in South Carolina back in, um, you know, back in, in, during that time in the early 80s. And um, so he basically, I had to talk to him, and I said, and he had a partner at the time. I said, look, I can't do this. I I won't do this. I won't start this group. I'd like to start this group, but I won't do that unless you give me your permission. Because, you know, Mm. I have three children, but, you know, people will know that I'm talking about you, although I won't use your name if it just says one of her children is gay. So we'll just finally get around it. You know, you'd be outed. And he said, Mom, I'm out to some extent anyway. I'm out among my friends. And so he and his partner talked about it, and they decided that um, that they would, would let me announce it and go ahead and start the group. Because you know, when you start a group, you can't have people come to a meeting if they don't know about it. 
Mm-hmm. So I've got some press. The, uh, uh, there was a newspaper called the, the State Record newspaper. It was an afternoon paper, and I got an interview with um, a woman who was a writer for the, uh, a journalist for this paper, and she wrote a very nice article about and had my picture, and it sent me starting this group, the gays, for parents of gays. And that's how it started, and that's how people started coming. And we met at my house for a while, and then we started meeting at other places. But, um, and that was back in 82, so it was a long time ago. And, and I, it was one of the best things I ever did. I'm so glad that I had, that my, I'm so glad that my son had the courage mm-hmm. to allow me he and his partner, to allow me to put them in the forefront along with me to start this group. And I don't think it, if I had really thought about it for a long time, I probably wouldn't have done it because it's a scary thing. I probably would have said to myself, oh, you can't put Greg in this position. It's just too much. But, you know, I just wanted to do it so much. And when he said, it's okay, Mom, we, we'll, you can do it. And, of course, he didn't have any bad reactions. In fact, he he was at the University of South Carolina. He said, "I don't think they can kick me out for being gay," and I said, "I don't think so either." And where in the place where he had a part time job at a men's clothing store, uh, they didn't really say anything about at all that was negative. So he weathered that storm. And um, I think if he has ever been, and I'm sure there've been times when he's been discriminated against. I know that, but he would, you know, he he doesn't tell me about that because it would hurt me. But for the most mm-hmm. part, because of our support, I think he's had um, a much, much easier time than most gay people do. Okay, well, here, Carrie, we're going to take our first break. And I want to get back to you. I want to talk a little bit more about that and some of the other things that you've done. So okay. we're taking our first short break here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And we'll be back with our guest, Harriet Hancock, in a very few minutes. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. And we're back with more conversation with our guest Harriet Hancock. Harriet, that first meeting of, of PFLAG in your house, and I know, I mean, like I said, I'm sure that I can just imagine that, first of all, who's going to show up? Um, you were concerned about your son, and you had, you know, and you're marking your house. I mean, you know, like you're having this meeting here, and you're marking your house as a place where LGBT people are cared about. What was that first meeting like? Well, the first meeting, my, my sister, I have to say, she passed away in 96, but and she was the, my son's favorite aunt, and he's the one that she came out to first. She was as much interested in this group as I was, so she was with me all the way um, and in support of the LGBT community and the day she died. And so she was with me on that day, and she helped me plan the meeting, and we planned some refreshments and and um, I had phone, some phone calls giving people the directions because my phone number was in the paper. They didn't give my address in the paper, but they gave my phone mm. number for people to call if they were interested in coming to a meeting. And we had um, my sister and me 
and um, there were five other people there that day. There were three women, um, and they were all mothers of lesbians, and there were two lesbians that came, because, you know, we don't shut the door on anybody. If you were, if you were a gay person and you wanted to come to a meeting, that was okay, too. Um, so, so we had five all together, and I can tell you that um, I figured that the meeting might last an hour, hour and a half. I will tell you, it went on for like four hours because it was so wonderful to see that this was the first time that these women had ever talked to anybody about their lesbian daughters, and they just wanted to share things with each other. Uh, and so they just talked nonstop, and we all cried and laughed and talked. And and I finally said to my sister, I said, "These cookies and punching are going to do it. We're going to have to feed these people something. <laughs> I don't know if they're going home." So mm-hmm. she says, "You got any fermented cheese? We can make some sandwiches." So she went in and made sandwiches. So we had a little little, little more to eat because they just didn't they didn't want to go. They just were just seemingly to feel so. Um, I don't know, relieved or, or having found a common bond with people that you had been uh, with an issue that you had been sort of hiding or not discussing for years on end, and then you found somebody that you could relate to that was going through the same thing. It was just amazing. And that's the thing that I think Flag is really good at, is that people want to talk to another person who has experienced what they're experiencing. So... It was a great meeting, and so we started having um, meetings once a month. And uh, there's still a P flag right here in Columbia. <laughs> we still meet once a month. In fact, we're going to be meeting um, tomorrow night. So you know, uh-huh. we, and we we just still have a group. And now there's like five P flags in South Carolina, or maybe even more. We have Charleston, Spartanburg, Greenville, Myrtle Beach. Gosh, we have um, Aiken. We have a number of groups, and and uh, um, I'm just happy that we, you know, for the longest time, that the Columbia group was the the only one, and people would actually drive from wait, you know, long distances to come to meetings. But now we have them across the state, so people can go to a meeting closer to them. And and we've done some wonderful things, I think, as groups, you know, speaking out on behalf of our children. Uh-huh. You know, to advocate for them and to, to um, and you know, what we most found the most amazing thing is that they sometimes were very reluctant to come out to neighbors or uh-huh. family members or anybody else. I said, you know what, it's going to be different than you think it's going to be because what you're going to see is a lot of times people are just going to say, well, that's okay, I have a sister, my sister's a lesbian, or I have uh-huh. an aunt and her partner, they've been our friends for years, and they're lesbian. So you're going to find some support, and don't be afraid to do it because, you know, because a lot of them, oh, I can't tell anybody. And sometimes they didn't for a long time, but then when they got the courage, and it would be wonderful to see, you know, people that would come in and say, oh, you know, they were just from the very beginning didn't know if they could accept their gay child. They just, you know, maybe they had religious issues uh, that they, you know, thought their child was such a sinner that they were going to be in hell and all of these religious things that bother them but you know I said this is about your child you cannot turn your back on child because of some stupid things that people say and you know there's a lot of talk about what the Bible says and people interpret it different ways don't get bogged down in that 
because I don't believe that's what the Bible said or that's what it meant, and we don't live by everything the Bible says anyway, but I don't like to get into that discussion mm-hmm. the religion. There are other people who do it better than I, because I, I don't, that doesn't bother me at all. It, mm-hmm. it never has, and if it bothers other people, then I can give them some reading material or send them to a good minister who has a very different view of that, and they can come through it, but... I guess what I was going to say is so gratifying is to see people come into Peak Flag when you think that they're never going to move forward, and then three or four years later you see them marching with their kids in a gay pride march. That is rewarding, to say the least. But you know what? Like, you went beyond just Peak Flag, because I, I know people who have been involved in Peak Flag, and that's, that's their niche, and they're happy with it. And, you know, there's one thing when the... HIV and AIDS epidemic really hit. I mean, suddenly, I know people who have said, like, okay, they were going along fine till suddenly there was this disease, and people pulled back and away, and it made it challenging. And you went on to to found the Palmetto AIDS Life Support Services in South Carolina. Right. I, I can tell you how that started. Yeah. I, I went to um, Denver. Colorado in, in 1984 for the big, huge P-Flag convention. And I learned at that time that um, people were talking about um, this. At, at that time, I don't know, they, the first they used to call it um, um, GRID, Gay-Related uh-huh. Immune System Disease, it was called GRID. And they were just talking about it as being a gay disease. And... Um, one of the women that I had known that had helped me with P-Flag had a son who was dying of it. And it just scared me so, because really I hadn't I'd heard maybe a little bit about it. But when I got out there and that was the talk of that convention was this horrible disease that's killing our children. And there was more than one person there that either had a child that had it or they knew of someone. And I thought, oh, this is serious. When I get back to Columbia, we better start looking at what we're going to be doing because, you know, this is going to be everywhere if it's like they think, it's going to spread. And what are we going to do when it comes to Columbia, South Carolina, or South Carolina? Because it's it's a disease that started with a stigma that it carried for a long time. And to some people, it still carries a stigma. They mm-hmm. think that only gay people have HIV, AIDS. And, of course, that's ridiculous. And, you know, how people would say things like they deserve it. They, it's their behavior. They, you know, you know, they deserve to get AIDS because of their horrible behavior, you know, that, that kind of thing. Just, just. So when I came back, I, I met with some people. I, like I said, I met a lot of um, friends in the LGBT community by going around to gay bars and giving out literature. So I knew some bar owners and I knew some people. And sure enough, I um, I had called the, um, I would sent out some letters to some hospitals and in the area saying, I'm a P-flag mom and I'm heard of this disease, um, HIV AIDS, and uh, I said, I just want to say that I um, work within the LGBT community, and if you ever have anyone that is in need in your hospital that needs a, a helping hand or needs somebody to visit uh, that, have, that has AIDS, then please let me know. Well, it wasn't long before there was a hospital in the upstate here that got in contact with me and told me that it was a man there who had had been um, rejected by his family and that he could sure use some help. I mean, he could sure use some visitors. And so we started a regular visitation. I got some people from the 
the MCC church involved, and we started going to visit him. And what a horrible story. So we started doing those kind of things, and then we had a meeting because it, it happened that um, a young man in Columbia that that was that all of us knew or knew of or knew somebody who knew him, he, he got AIDS and he died very quickly. And the treatment mm-hmm. that he got when he was sick was so horrible that, you know, people wouldn't even believe it. I'm talking about through the ignorance of not knowing that this disease was not thread, uh, not spread through casual contact, people were avoiding anyone, you know, that the trays wouldn't be picked up out of hospital rooms. Beds wouldn't be changed. You know, uh, the people would not want to come in the room. I'm talking about the health care providers. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and, of course, I think the, a lot of the health care providers were doing the best they could. It was some, some of them that refused to do that staff and people that do the, you know, clean the rooms dry, they just would refuse to come in, so, and they were getting treat, horrible treatment, and we had the doctors were just raising the roof of the hospitals because of that horrible treatment, and then uh, general homes refusing to accept bodies, ministers yeah. refusing to do services for gay people, so we, we started the Palmetto AIDS Life Support Services in August of um, 1985, same year I started law school. And um, it was, we couldn't raise any money because every time we went to a corporation or a place that normally would support um, a nonprofit organization that would do such outreach, just turned their backs on us. They were, didn't want to be associated with anything that had to do with HIV AIDS. So we, we raised, the first money we raised for PALS was in the gay bars all mm-hmm. over the state. We raised money and we raised $10,000 and that was our start, and from there on, we just worked hard at education, education, outreach, taking care of, of people who had lost their jobs and lost their insurance and had no place to go, were fighting with insurance companies because they talked about pre-existing conditions. People couldn't get medication. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on, but we needed it, and PALS is still in operation today, Palmetto AIDS Life Support Services. It has survived all this, and they still provide great services today and you know we still have to keep talking about this because some young people think that they're invincible and they don't practice safe sex and you know they think they can't get it well they can so we need Mm -hmm. to still be providing condoms and talking about safe sex and you know really you know so that this this um hopefully we can eradicate this disease completely now i know that you worked a lot you talked a lot about the the legal work that you did talking to LGBT people, helping them get their paperwork and doing it. You know, you said you, you, you learned about HIV and AIDS. It wasn't long after you came out of law school. Did you suddenly see, like, okay, I had thought I was going to go to law school for this, but this is where I'm supposed to be, and this is where I'm supposed to put my efforts and, and help this community which yes, is, it you is know. because I think one of the first cases I ever had when I got out of law school, and I didn't know what in the world to do, but I figured it out. Um, I think I'd been out of law school about two years, maybe no, maybe about a year, and that's still you're still a greenhorn when you've been out of law school about a year. And I had a transgender person come, and um, and they were seeking to get the marker on their birth certificate changed. Um, you know, from um, this was female to male. 
And mm-hmm. I had, and, and who in the world ever heard of this in South Carolina? So nobody knew what to do. There were no laws pertaining to that. And so I talked with DHEC attorneys at the Department of Health and Environmental Control. And together they sort of suggested that I use the form that we normally use for a name change and just add more to it and just, you know, you petition the court for um, a gender marker change and also a name change at the same time. And so the first time I did that, I was scared to death. But there was no law preventing it, and I had heard well, somewhere I'd done some research. I don't even remember now. But they said what you have to have when you go to court is absolute proof that there has been a complete change. In other words, the, a certified letter by the doctor, you know, this mm-hmm. person is now is no longer female, but they are male, you know, kind of thing. So you had to have that to present to the judge. And the first time I did it, I can tell you my knees were knocking because I didn't know what in the world. I was trying to remain calm, but I don't know if I was very calm or not. And, of course, my client was not very calm either, but the judge was good. And granted it, there was not, you know, we, uh, I really went through, jumped through all the hoops to prove my point, um, you know, that I had to prove for him to grant the order, and I did a really good job on that. And he, and he granted it, and so after that, um, I, you know, I figured that out. And, uh, of course, then there was a lot of um, domestic issues where gay people who have gotten married to, married, you know, when you think you can, you know, you think maybe, I think I can change. All I need to do is get married. And then mm-hmm. and everybody thinks you're going to change. Well, it doesn't work. And a lot of times people stay together, they have children, and they realize it's not fair to either one of them, and they get divorces. And you have issues of child custody. And all kinds of things. And I tell you, gay people were so afraid that they were going to be outed in court, which, you know, and there were so many threats by partners thinking that they had the upper hand, that they could get the kids uh-huh. because their husband was gay. They could they could get everything. They could, because if they didn't, you know, it was almost like a blackmail thing. If they didn't think they were going to tell everybody, oh, it was a nightmare. And I just finally said, I represented one person who had gotten a divorce when I was probably still in law school, I think. And he had... He was, every time she'd come back for more child support, and rather than to go back to court, he'd just give her everything she wanted. And finally, he came to me and said, I'm being bled dry here. You know, she's got everything. Uh I don't get to see the kids. And and I said, well, I'll be glad to represent you. I said, but you are going to have to help me here. I said, you cannot be embarrassed about being gay anymore. You cannot go in that courtroom and hang your head. You're going to go in there with your head held up high. And we're going to talk with you. This is about an increase in child support which I said, they, you've been just giving in to her everything she asked, you've done it. I said, we're going to go to court, and we're going to look at the child support guidelines. And I said, you don't owe her any more money. She might, might owe you, you know, you don't owe her any increase in child support. And when we got through with that, and that was another one where I was pretty nervous because they used, the, called him a homosexual every way they could say it and tried mm-hmm. to bring in his past and everything up. And it was, and I kept saying, this is irrelevant. This is about child support. But, you know, they just wanted to rake him over the coals every time they could. I'm talking about his ex, okay? <laughs> and, uh-huh. you know, because she was still vindictive. Just all that time she was terribly vindictive. And um, so the judge said, well, just look at the, the, you know, work out the child support guidelines, look at everybody's incomes, all that other stuff. And um, I had already done it. And I, we presented to the judge, and then he went over and he says, actually, you're entitled to a decrease in child support because you've been paying too much, but from here on uh-huh. out, here's what the guidelines say. 
and this uh-huh. is what you're supposed to be paying every month. So that man was so happy. He said, I've never, he said, it didn't bother me so much because you were with me when they were saying, you know, you're a homosexual in every way they could say it. And the fact that for the first time in his life, he was not afraid of her anymore. And he had actually gotten something, you know, he had gotten his child support decreased. And she stopped doing that. She totally stopped Mm. doing that. She tried to keep his children from coming around him. And I kept saying, when they get to be 18, you can't do much now. They will come back. And, of course, as soon as they, you know, got old enough, they came right back to him. And they have a wonderful relationship now. So those are the kind of things I tried to do. well, you know, from from when you started out, like that that first case, your knees are knocking and stuff, and then you look at all that has happened with LGBTQ rights and all these changes. I mean, how did you keep up with it, and what did you did you see it ever getting to the point where we would have marriage equality? And what well, you are know the it was challenges? happening so fast. Yeah, and I mm-hmm. worked with I worked well. It was when the um, Edie Windsor case, you know, the property uh-huh. case, the, you know, the estate tax and all that. Uh-huh. When that happened, we all said, oh, my gosh, we think this has just opened the door now. We said we don't see that marriage is far behind, and then it started like dominoes falling every state, every state, every state. And, of course, then South Carolina, we were in the Fourth Circuit, and we were uh-huh. one of the ones that they uh, declared the ban on marriage unconstitutional, or, you know. So we were in the fight, and I worked for... Um, the South Carolina Equality has a, a legal group called the post Litigation Task Force, and I'm a member of that, and we all worked on um, the marriage issue. And, um, you know, we had cases here. And uh, so even though I was retired at the time, that came along because I retired in 2013. But uh, I've worked on the task force anyway. Um, and we, we really, you know, um, talked to legislators we really fought hard here in every way we could to get the marriage thing going. And, you know, we won it. We won it hands down. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and uh, I um, actually, all of us were surprised. All the attorneys that I know that work on that task force and all the attorneys I work with were all like, is it really happening? Are these states really doing this? Are they all saying, are they all finding in our favor? And it was one by one by one. We said, is this really going to happen? And then when it gets to the Supreme Court, we thought, please, God, let it happen. And it did. But we were shocked. I can tell you, we never realized. I used to say to young people that would come to my, young same-sex couples that would come to my office to get their paperwork done to protect them legally, as I talked about before, they'd say, Harry, when do you think we're going to get married? I said, oh, honey, not in my lifetime. Maybe in yours, I hope. And so when marriage passed, I sent out an email to all the young people, the couples. I don't say young. Some of them been together for 30 years that I was doing the paperwork for. I sent out this thing. And I didn't call it right, but you can now get married. And because of that, I'm going to marry you free because I'm a notary public and I've performed 20 marriages so far. Uh uh And um, they give me a donation for the center. And, and, you know, lieu of paying me because I don't charge anything. So it has been a, a most rewarding experience. It really has. Uh-huh. Now, let, you brought up the center, and I know that um, it was founded by the board of the South Carolina Gay and Lesbian Pride Movement. Um, we talked about how you were involved with starting the Pride Marches. Mm-hmm. That To have a center 
okay? Because I, I know that you have PFLAG meeting at your house. And I said, what, when did the community come together and say, you know, we need a place, a, our official home? Okay. Uh, it kind of started, and when you're trying to put together a thing like a pride march, and you've got so many committees because you're working on so many angles, and you're trying to meet people, so it's just not convenient. You needed one meeting place where people could mm-hmm. come. And sometimes you would book the, the public library. They'd give you a meeting room, but then you couldn't have it every month. You'd have to find someplace else to go. So we found this house that was located in an in area where we thought would be appropriate, and there were a lesbian couple that had worked on the Pride March, and the house was right on the street behind them, and they said, there's a house on, on behind us this, this being this in an estate, and they're looking to sell it, so we got a good deal, but the board was not all in favor of getting it, but we finally managed to get the vote. They said, if you can go out, and, and people said, you're going to have to raise so much money for the down payment. Well, we raised the money for the down payment, and we voted to buy it, and we bought it in 1994 and paid for it in 10 years. Mm-hmm. And um, it is there, and it is a wonderful place. It is We call it a home away from home for anybody who comes there. And I'll tell you what we do. We have, we, we have outreach. We have a wonderful youth group. In fact, I went to their queer prom um, on Saturday night. I had a ball. They asked mm-hmm. me to chaperone the queer prom. I think that's probably... <laughs> Last year there was 150 kids from all over the state there, and I think there was probably about this many this year, and they had it at the um, Adventure, which is uh, near the State Museum. I just had a blast. These kids had so much fun, and how what a wonderful thing for them to come with their partners and feel safe and dance to their music and just have a good time. So that's one thing. We have a wonderful youth group, and we do outreach to um, the GSA's Gay Student Associations, you know, all at the schools and encourage them and help them in any way we can. We have, I don't know, we have three transgender groups that are meeting at the center. Uh, we have, we're starting in what we call an AARP. It's more like a senior LGBT group. We have all kinds of social events. We're getting ready to start a movie night. On the first Sunday of every month, we have... Um, a potluck at 2 o'clock that everybody comes. We furnish the meat dish or the hot dogs and hamburgers. Everybody brings a side dish, and then we just have a big celebration, <laughs> fun, and and talk about, you know, what's coming up in the community. We do announcements because we try to keep everybody up to date on what's happening around the community. And we have, we're a resource center. If you come and you need a doctor, you need a dentist, you need whatever you need, uh, you need a place to to rent, you know, we have all kinds of notice boards and resource guides and all kinds of magazines and pamphlets, and we have a wonderful, wonderful library where people can check out books. They can come and do resource. Uh, if they're doing a um, term paper, for instance, they can come because we have great resources. So we just an outreach to the community, and we have allies that come and, and help with us. We have volunteers. The center's not open all hours, but it's open some hours every day. And we're trying to build our volunteer staff so that we can maintain uh, um, hours, full hours every day. But we've operated this center for the longest time with no paid staff. And, it, and sometimes that's very difficult to do with just volunteers. Mm-hmm. So this year we hired a part-time center director, which has really made a difference. And we also have a paid part-time facilitator with the youth group. So we're hanging in there, and we're just doing really good things. And... Um, you know, we do important things. We lobby. We help um, our, our lobby.
lobbying group in our, our we call it our political arm in the state. It's called South Carolina Equality, and we try to help you, them. Uh-huh. Before you go into that, I'm going to take our second break. Okay. And because I want to, I've got a couple of other things I want to ask you about that and, and to learn more about what, what you're up to. So okay. we're going to take our second break here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and we'll be returning to talk more with the mother of South Carolina Pride, the mother of Pride, Harriet Hancock, calling in from Columbia, South Carolina. We'll be back shortly. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. on Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. Join the collection at www.collectionsbymichellebrown.com. Well, we're back. Harriet, when they named the the center after you, were you aware they were going to do it? Was it a surprise? They they told me that we were having a celebration, and I think we were celebrating an anniversary, and they were also going to be naming the center for me. They wanted to tell me because they wanted my family to come, and my daughter, you know, who lives in Maryland, they wanted her to come with her family and so they let me know in advance and they were able to come and I was just overjoyed that's just the greatest honor um mm-hmm. to have my name associated with with that that center I just you know I feel like it's home to me I go over there and I just feel like people say, I said you know can we do this and they said well this is your house I said not really but I do feel like I feel a kinship I feel like I want to take care of it I want it to be clean I want it to be nice I want the yard kept and we do. We have a great people to do their art and all kinds of stuff. It's a, it's really a lovely place. It really is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, about when President Obama got elected, I was on the board of National Black Justice Coalition. And I know, I mean, to have a president, and as you see that he came more and more and more, I mean, to be really become an, an ally and an advocate. And there you were. I saw the picture of you standing there with him. When you got that, when you knew you were going to go, and did you think back to that, Harriet Hancock, who decided to go to college, and here you're standing with the President of the United States. What was that moment like? Well, it's just unbelievable. You know, it's almost like, is it really real? You want to pinch yourself to be sure you're really there, because it seems like it's so out of the ordinary. It's just so unusual, and, and absolutely, I just, I tell you something, I love Barack Obama and his entire family, and I've always supported him from day one. Although I have to say, I, I was a big Hillary supporter when they were opposing each other. But uh-huh. when it looked like she wasn't going to get it, I 100% supported Barack Obama. And still to this day, you know, um, think that he's our best president. I think you go down in history as one of the best presidents ever. But it was wonderful to be able to meet him. And he is a genuine, real, concerned person. And I think he's done wonderful things for the LGBT community in spite of all the... Um, you know, the backlash she got from from all the Republicans. He just went ahead and did it anyway, and we thank him for that. Mm-hmm. So, it may, you know, it did make you feel like a lot of that work that you were working towards and doing it, did that help you, like, sort of see that maybe, like you, I heard you saying that you told some people, maybe not in um, your lifetime, but in theirs, right. but seeing that and being in that environment and seeing that atmosphere, did that make you sort of say, like, yeah, it will happen, that all these things you had struggled with and fought for, that future you had wanted to be able to have for your son and for all of those people who called you the mother of pride, that you saw that they would have that 
happy life that you have been fighting yeah, for all those years? I absolutely did. And I think Obama was really smart. To, you know, he did as much as he possibly could, and he really pushed it along a long way. And when I was there, I thought about, yes, it's really going to happen. We're going to have marriage because, you know, I remember being at the White House that day, and that was right before Obama had declared that he was 100% for gay marriage. In fact, as we all know, Biden kind of put him on the spot, remember? Uh -huh. But uh -huh. anyway, I thought, he, even that day, he, he walked into the room when he was getting ready to address the entire crowd, and New York had just passed, uh, had, had just passed marriage, uh, same-sex marriage. And he walked into the room, and the first thing he said to the crowd was he raised up his hand, and he said, How about New York, folks? So that told me right then he's for gay marriage. He is celebrating New York with us. So I knew he was for it. I just knew he had to bide his time for when he, when he could come out. It's all politics, but, oh, gosh, yeah, he's really great. And I did think then that, you know, it's going to happen. It's happening in my lifetime, and, and that just, you know, it's just you know, wonderful. I know you retired from practicing law in 2013, but as I listen to you talk, I know that you aren't tired, that you're still there, you're still working and advocating. Even though we have marriage equality, we've got a different administration, we still have people pushing back. Uh, there's what lots of you, work to do. You know, we always think yeah. you get married on Sunday, you get fired on Monday, so we need okay. employment non-discrimination in the worst way. We've got a lot of work to do, and we're still out there doing it. So, yeah, I'm still working for as much as I can. I don't have quite as much energy as I used to, mm -hmm. but I can sit here on this computer and do a lot. Mm -hmm. And then I do go to all the functions that I can possibly go to. Like I said, now I went to that queer prom, and it was the most fun mm -hmm. I had in a long time. <laughs> now, you were telling me about a recent victory that you had as far as adoption there. Oh, this was when it was many years ago. It was some years ago when we were facing... Because all of that has been worked out now that there's marriage. Uh -huh. You know, uh -huh. now that, you know, people, the same-sex couples, their partner can adopt. So, whereas that was not the case before the marriage, but now they can. So that's been worked out pretty well. But I think we used to have um, the legislature every year would try to bring up uh, banning gay and lesbian people from adopting children. Well, there's no law against it. It doesn't mention it. It just says you know, certain qualifications, but it doesn't mention gay or straight or anything, but they kept trying to pass that for year after year, but we always managed to, to have enough testimony against it or convince people that that was not the right thing to do. So um, I think probably 13, they had 13 initiatives last year, <coughs> uh, LGBT initiatives against the LGBT community, and every single one of them were turned back because we have equality and we have legislators and we had a... Um, a lobbyist, so we really won that battle. We were very proud that our political South Carolina equality went to back with the bat with the help of the rest of us, and we overcame every single anti-gay bill in that legislature. And I'm proud of that. So we're doing better. And adoption, they never passed anything against adoption, so we're good there too. So I consider that a victory. Yeah, you know, I mean, as you look back on your life, and you know, and you've had. And if you're talking, because, I mean, you've got children now, adult, you've got grandchildren, and they're looking at you, and, I mean, and they look back on your life, how would you tell them, like, how important has it been, like, the intersections that have influenced your life? How have they impacted you and the directions that you've taken? And how will it impact 
your future work and their lives in the future from what Harriet Hancock has done? Well, you know, I've always been close to my family, and I have six grandchildren, and they've all been raised knowing about that they have a gay uncle. From the time that they were, you know, we had a book called Uncle, What Is It Is Coming to Visit? And it was about a, a man who was gay, went to see his niece and nephew, and they were asking, and his mother said he was gay, and they wanted to know what it was. So we used several books, and we always talked very openly about it, so they never grew up thinking anything different. And I want you to know that my grandchildren are big advocates of the LGBT community. They march in parades with me. I have my whole family marching in this parade now. Uh-huh. They come from Maryland to South Carolina, and they love the festival, and they march in the parade. But I will tell you, and they worked in their own home state of Maryland when they were talking about passing, when, when they were for marriage. And my my daughter even said, she says, I threatened that I will never vote for them again. And I said, that's what you have to do. So we're all advocates. We're kind of a family of advocates. My daughter, Jennifer, she is the operations director for South Carolina to this job, and she gives it her everything because it's a passion with her just like it's a passion with me. We really do. Um. I want to thank tonight's guest, Harriet Hancock, with the Harriet Hancock LGBT Center in Columbia, South Carolina. You can learn more about the Hancock Center by calling area code 803-771-7713. The Hancock Center is located at 1108 Woodrow Street in Columbia, South Carolina. And their website is www.lgbtcenter.org. SouthCarolina.org. That's www.lgbtcentersc.org. You can make change where you are. Mrs. Hancock's life has shown us that. And I hope you'll join us again next week when we're going to bring to you another amazing individual who's living between the lines standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. That's right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. You can listen to us on Blog. You can listen to Collections by Michelle Brown on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitchers, and SoundCloud. Be sure to like and follow the broadcast. Join us next week at 7 p.m. on Thursday for Collections by Michelle Brown. Have a good evening, everyone.